Okay, everyone, welcome to uh, this week's Earthquake Science Center seminar. We're hybrid here again. Some of us are in the Yosemite room. Uh, everyone else at home, make sure you uh, mute and turn off your cameras. Uh, a couple announcements on next Tuesday, the 31st, there is a, a town hall, USGS town hall, talking about uh, administrative things and uh, DEIA and other things. So that'll actually be overlapping with uh, the NorCal workshop, which is also next week, but that town hall will be recorded. So don't worry about that. So then, yeah, also next week is the NorCal workshop from Tuesday uh, to Thursday. On Tuesday, there's going to be a group meeting in here. They're not ready for prime time. People are going to be meeting in the Yosemite room to just watch the uh, workshop from here. And what else? Oh, and then, of course, since the Northern California workshops next week, there's no seminar next week. So I think that's about it. Now I'm going to pass it to Jeff. Just one thing, Evan. <clears throat> Excuse me. Will you have the workshop on the big screen here? Yeah. I think yes. we will. Good. Yeah. Okay. On Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay. And when, well, then we'll decide. So we will, yeah, we're going to try to show the workshop from the big screen here next week. So if anyone wants to come in, that'll be happening. And I'll pass it to Jeff to introduce the speaker. Right. I'm not sure which mic is on, but um, it's the room mic. The room mic, okay. Our uh, speaker today is Valer Lambert. He's an NSF or Sciences postdoc across the hill at UC Santa Cruz, which is actually pretty far north by his standards. He uh, grew up in Southern California um, and stayed at there at Caltech for his undergrad, where he was uh, happily doing math and physics until some combination of Jean-Philippe Babouac and uh, Sylvain Barbeau convinced him to switch to geophysics. Um, he uh, has then stayed at Caltech for his PhD, mostly with Nadia Lapusta. Somewhere in there, he spent some time at Griffith Observatory of Singapore, which I'm not really sure when that was. But um, <laughs> he's uh, um, done a lot of interesting things, um, a lot of highly advanced uh, numerical simulations that he'll tell us about today that really try to do both the aseismic and the seismic parts of false slip correctly simultaneously, which lets him look at the seismic radiation that comes out of these models and connect that back to the underlying friction, which is really interesting. Um, you'll hear a lot about that today. He's also had interests as far apart as uh, structural engineering and building response, um, just a little bit. And um, and I think he's working a lot on the role of heterogeneity and faulting, um, both in his PhD work and his postdoc, which is, of course, really interesting. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> thank you for the introduction, and uh, thank you all for having me here. Um, so today I'd like to talk about a lot of the work for my PhD, looking at how we can constrain or infer absolute stress levels, particularly on mature plate boundary faults, and really using the types of numerical simulations that we've been doing to try to bridge insight from laboratory experiments to what we can actually infer at large field scales. Um, so this work was done with my PhD advisor, Nadia Lapusta, and also some collaboration with Dan Faulkner. And um, please feel free to also interrupt me with questions. I'm very used to that style of talk. Um, so active conversation here. Um, so kind of broad motivation for my line of work, and I'm sure is of interest for many of you, is essentially trying to understand the conditions governing motion on faults. So why do we care about understanding the stress on faults? 
Ultimately, we want to know the forces that are loading faults, what conditions govern the failure or the um, initiation of rapid fault slip or also a seismic slip. And ultimately, the kind of questions I'm interested in is what controls how and how large they can become, right? So this is up and just for a lot of scientific studies in terms of earthquake physics, crustal deformation, plate tectonics, but also obviously for understanding seismic hazards and you know, where might we expect earthquakes to become and how or to start and where they may actually propagate, such as along the entire San Andreas Fault or to the shallow extents of subduction, like in the, the Tohoku. Um, so that's kind of, those are kind of the driving questions behind my research. Um, and so if we step back and think about classical conceptual models for the evolution of motion and shear stress on faults, we typically come back to these very simplified representations, right? We can think about a fault in this very simplified continuum fault model where we have a planar fault undergoing some remote shear loading. You have certain regions that are stuck and accumulating elastic strain uh, during the interseismic period and then releasing that during earthquakes. Um, and we typically assume that the frictional resistance along faults is actually a frictional Coulomb, Coulomb frictional style resistance where basically the shear resistance is proportional to some friction coefficient through an effective normal stress. And while this representation here is already incredibly simplified compared to the real world, we by this even further into this kind of single degree of freedom spring block slider. Imagine a block that's just being dragged along a frictional interface with some elastic spring. And we can use these kind of conceptual models to try to understand the inter-event periods, the initiation of failure. So if we were to take this simple spring block miter model and simulate sequences of stick slip events, we would see that the shear stress slows up to some static strength and then drops and has some slip. During that slip event, you would see the drop in resistance from some static strength to typically some dynamic strength. And we often assume that these dynamic and static strength levels are proportional to some static and dynamic friction levels that are assumed to be material properties. The difference between these is a stress drop. And so the value of developing these models is that we have some notion of a critical failure criterion that will also lead us to when events will start. If we can actually measure some properties like the stress drop, we can actually understand the differences and these material properties of a static friction, dynamic friction. We might understand the size of an event, how much slip there would be. And ultimately, if we could also uh, get back some sort of loading rate, then we could get some inter-event time, right? So the whole entire idea of developing these simplified models is to get some notion of inferable properties like stress drop and properties that we might constrain from the lab, like static friction, and then use that to have some predictive capability, right? So one of the things I'd like to talk about a lot today are notions of like criticality and strength and what that actually means when we look at natural field scales. Um, so based off all of this, a lot of different studies try to infer aspects of fault stress and its evolution, both in the lab and field. Most of our understanding of friction and rock failure comes from our laboratory experiments, typically relatively small-scale laboratory experiments in the order of millimeters and centimeters. So as many of you are aware of, this includes these low-velocity or relatively low-velocity friction experiments, as well as increasingly some more high-velocity experiments, that rotary shear experiments that try to get up to seismic slip rates and probe frictional resistance under different conditions. And then on the other end, we have field-scale inferences, such as from seismological inversions from earthquakes or heat flow measurements that represents average measures of stress over kilometer scales, or hundreds of kilometers, right? So these are averaged both over space and time, 
Whereas in contrast, these small scale experiments typically represent are on small scales and often represent relatively uniform motion occurring on on these samples. Um, so over time, we've had some more intermediate scale experiments, uh, such as laboratory experiments that use analog materials or big blocks that try to understand how heterogeneous motion evolution of ruptures can actually affect the evolution of fracture or trying to infer the evolution of stress during heterogeneous motion. But these are often limited just by experimental design. So trying to bridge all these different types of observation scales and averaging procedures is a major challenge. And that's where we try to come in with numerical models here to kind of fill in the gaps where these intermediate scales experiments are also trying to work with. Um, so already if we start off and look at what we know from the lab, we can already see that friction is quite complicated in some ways. So we, many of us know that from a lot of laboratory experiments, we see that the fault shear resistance evolves depending on a number of different properties, namely the rate of motion and the history of motion that the interface that has actually undergoing. Um, so in the typical continuum representation for the evolution of stress on a fault, we would balance the uh, evolution of fault stress with the fault shear resistance, where the fault stress evolves over time due to loading, stress transfer during, due to fault slip, and the shear resistance will depend on a variety of properties, such as the normal stress, core fluid pressure within the shearing layer, the slip rate, temperature, and histories of all these quantities. And so the most developed, like the most established representation of fault shear resistance is encapsulated in these so-called rate and state friction laws. The typical one, this Dietrich-Rina framework that's shown here, um, basically tries to encapsulate this rate and state or history dependence where we can see over on the left that if you impose a jump in the sliding rate, such here, an order of magnitude jump in the sliding rate, you have this initial increase in shear resistance and then evolution to a new so-called steady state resistance under a new sliding rate. And so that encapsulates this rate dependence or velocity dependence, as well as this evolution state effect. And also in slide hold slide experiments, if you hold an interface under negligible motion for time and then try to slide again, we see that friction increases, right? And so all these different quality of features are encapsulated in these so-called rate and state uh, friction laws. We can also have formulations for the state evolution describing the quality or quantity of contacts. And one of the most underappreciated aspects, I think, of rate and state friction laws is the notion that static friction is not well-defined in these kinds of concepts, right? There is no clear failure condition because interfaces under shear loading are always sliding at some non-zero slip rate. Um, so we can already start to see this complication of what does failure really mean when we look at rate and state friction. Um, and so, as many of you know, there are two different important features with rate and state friction laws. If you see this decrease in friction with increasing sliding, we call that velocity weakening, potentially leading to unstable sliding. In contrast, for other conditions, if you see this increase in shear resistance, we call this velocity strengthening, just to make sure everyone's on the same page here. And that promote stable sliding as you have this uh, negative feedback. So another important feature as we, we um, we're looking at modeling frictional ruptures is this analogy between shear fracture and frictional rupture. So when we think about fracture, we often imagine that we have this elastic body or this body that's undergoing some remote loading. Inside the crack, we have a region that's shearing and ahead of the crack, we have unfractured material where if we were to look at the shear stress ahead of the crack, you would have the shear stress at this background remote loading condition. It would go up to some peak stress level and break down to a traction-free surface where you have zero stress. And this breakdown at the crack tip is called 
uh, is where we have the material response, where you have that creation of the fracture surface. The energy to create that is often called the fracture energy, and is encapsulated in the small zone called the Hohlisa zone. And we often model frictional ruptures in a similar way. And this is because even though we have these complicated rate and state friction laws, at slow sliding rates, they show very similar uh, relationship to these kind of cohesive zone laws and fracture mechanics. So if we look at a frictional rupture, we see instead of a, a fractured area, we have a slipping region. And ahead of the slipping region, we have a locked region where we have a pre-existing interface, but negligible slip. And then if we look at the shear stress, we go from some remote stress level up to a peak and then drop down to some residual friction level. And as long as this residual friction level is more or less constant, we can separate that mathematically and we get this analogy to uh, fracture. And the same region at the crack tip where we have this breakdown, we can encapsulate an equivalent breakdown energy, once again, assumed to be a material property, just like in, in uh, mode one fracture. So this analogy has been incredibly useful and based, supported by these friction laws at low sliding rates, uh, because of the similar evolution to a more or less constant friction level, has been widely used for modeling earthquake source processes from earthquake nucleation, deriving a relationship to a critical crack size, basically looking at this balance between the mechanical energy release rate as you have an expanding slipping region versus that breakdown energy. We can actually estimate areas that are large enough to start releasing stored energy as uh, waves. Um, so that gives us a critical nucleation size. And similarly, we can use fraction mechanics to study stuff like the earthquake energy budget. So here's the standard earthquake energy budget diagram where we can look at the evolution from some average initial stress to final stress. And we can separate the total strain energy into components like dissipated energy and average breakdown energy, uh, radiated energy into seismic waves. And most important details of all of this is that we can actually start to relate seismologically inferable quantities such as static stress drop and average slip and radiated energy to aspects of the rupture physics. So this analogy to fracture mechanics has been incredibly useful, particularly in this relationship to some sort of static dynamic friction and holding this entire mathematical analogy to cohesion and fracture. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about how these hold up when we look at more and more physics these days. Um, and particularly, one of the key aspects of stepping back for a second, one of the key aspects of this diagram is essentially this assumption that everything below this residual resistance level here just disappears into the ether. All that dissipated energy doesn't do anything, it just is negligible. And that is one of the key aspects that is different between fracture and frictional rupture, which is that that dissipated energy can actually do stuff you have non-zero resistance there behind the rupturing phase. And so particularly, this has been something that has been known for a long time, that if you take typical rate and state friction laws and typical levels of shear stress that you'd expect with, say, a confinement of 100 MPa, you simulate you know, earthquakes here and you look at what the shear heating stresses would be, you get very high levels of shear heating stress. And if you try to like estimate the temperature increase due to that, well, that's going to be proportional to your slip rate and shear stress. And so if we just do a little phase diagram here of the dynamic shear resistance, assuming that would be fixed, and the localization of shear. Okay, so basically numerous lines of evidence suggest that the shear stresses must be low. This including arguments based off of heat, such as the extreme uh, um, suggestions that the localization of shear along mature faults is very, very localized between one to 10 millimeter layers. The lack of heat flow anomalies around mature faults, often referred to as the heat paradox, 
as well as drilling right after a large earthquake, such as after the 2011 Tohoku earthquake, where it found very mild temperature increases after large fault slip. And then also structural arguments, such as the angle between principal stresses and fault trace and the geometry of thrust level wedges. So there are a lot of different arguments that the operating stress levels on mature faults must be low. I want to point out that this is for mature faults um, and that there is a suggestion that some smaller, less mature faults may sustain higher shear stress levels. But if we ask this question of how to reduce the shear stress levels, it leads to two kind of standard ideas. One is that either the quasi-static friction has to be low, somewhere around 0.1, which is inconsistent with typical lab experiments of velocity weakening materials. So those typically, that would be consistent more with clays or velocity strengthening materials that would not typically be considered to produce earthquakes. Or we have to have low effective normal stress of around 30 MPa, which would suggest significant chronic fluid overpressurization. So luckily, lab experiments give one other potential explanation for this, which is that as we start to see more high-speed uh, friction experiments, we see that rate and state friction is not the whole story, but we have this dramatic shear-induced weakening at high slip rates. So if we look at friction coefficients typically around normal velocity, uh, typical uh, rate and state friction experiments around 10 to a 10 to, or 10 to the minus 8, 10 to the minus 4, so around millimeters per second slip rates, we get typical Byerly values of friction around 0.6 to 0.8. But as we go up to more of seismic slip rates around meters per second, we see this dramatic drop in frictional resistance down to near zero values. And so there have been a variety of proposed mechanisms for this um, enhanced weakening, many of which are thermally induced. So that would suggest this feedback between shear heating and shear resistance including flash heating of contact disparities, the thermal pressurization of pore fluids, which I'll be talking about particularly today, and thermal decomposition of um, the fault gouge material. And so a lot of different mechanisms can potentially lead to qualitatively similar behavior, but ultimately this would lead to low dynamic resistance and low heat production on our highest slippers. So... Okay, so just to illustrate these kind of two different conditions for frictional heating and associated fluid effects and fault weakness, if we imagine our shear resistance is proportional to our friction coefficient or effective stress, we can imagine that faults are either persistently weak, either due to, you know, due to high fluid overpressurization, so our pore pressure is always high and we have persistently low effective confinement. Or if we consider enhanced dynamic weakening, we can imagine that faults are dynamically weak, such as due to thermal pressurization of pore fluids. So in this case, you can imagine that as your fault starts to slip quickly, you have substantial heat generation initially at high stress levels and high slip rate. That will depend on the localization of shear. And then that will couple into, depending on the compressibility of the pore fluid and the rock matrix, uh, the, you can have actual thermal expansion of the pore fluids that will expand and uh, re result in uh, decreasing the confinement along the fault effectively. And these would be modulated depending on the rock permeability and uh, thermal conductivity. But ultimately, this would lead to a transient pressurization and weakening of the fault shear resistance. Um, so these are two different ways for fluid effects to uh, actually weaken a fault, either persistently or just during rapid slip. And one of the most important details of this enhanced weakening is that compared to rate and state friction, it just leads to a completely different 
and more dramatic uh, reduction in shear resistance compared to quasi-static resistance. So if we look at theoretical predictions from thermal pressurization, there would in fact be no fixed dynamic resistance level, but you could have potentially continued weakening all the way to zero resistance with slip. So if we imagine our initial shear stress here uh, at some negligible amount of slip, dropping all the way to zero with continuous slip. Um, so once again, coming back to our static and dynamic friction, in the case of enhanced dynamic weakening, we no longer have a clear defined level of dynamic resistance, which complicates that analogy a bit. And that's potentially useful for explaining this discrepancy between typical quasi-static friction coefficients in a lab of Byerly values around 0.6 and the inferred uh, low heat, low stress operation of mature faults where the inferred effective friction coefficients are typically lower around 0.1. But one of the key questions that I'd like to talk about is what does this mean for our earthquake observations? In particular, when we look at these typical spring block slider models, you have this static stress drop. And one of the most popular observations that we have from earthquakes is the static stress drop. A lot of debates over how stress drops are inferred, but one of the key things is that when you look at stress drops across a wide range of earthquake magnitudes, there is no clear trend for some magnitude dependence or dependence on the amount of average slip, which if we look at this nice simple diagram over here, we might imagine that depending on the amount of slip during an earthquake, you get a difference in the change of the, stru the stress change during that earthquake, right? And so the question is, is enhanced dynamic weakening consistent with our inferred observations of nearly magnitude invariant stress drops from earthquakes? So, a little bit of lag. So here I'll actually start talking about what I actually do. Um, when we talk about geophysical inferences, so we know a variety of different uh, field observations are used to infer earthquake physics. And one of the key aspects of this is that the most reliable ones tend to be average quantities because um, we're using remote observations typically. So these include average static stress drops or this average breakdown energy. And so one of the ultimate questions that I try to work on is how do we relate these average quantities to local fault behavior during rupture? And what can they actually tell us about the fault physics itself um, versus the averaging process? So for instance, this increasing average breakdown with rupture size is often used to you know, explain that, you know, basically you have this continuous weakening when as you have increasing slip, you have increasing uh, dissipation under the curve here. And so this increasing, inferred increase in average breakdown energy with rupture size is often used to suggest that thermal pressurization is ubiquitous on natural faults. Um, so that is one way that we use these average interpretations um, to give some idea of the fault physics. On, um. So for kind of my methodology here, what I'm gonna be doing is essentially taking our lab laboratory-derived friction laws, as well as some descriptions of enhanced dynamic weakening to thermal pressurization and incorporating them into a continuum fault model. So we have full elastodynamic treatments of wave-mediated stress interactions, as well as long-term loading, aseismic processes. We also track the evolution of temperature and pore pressure uh, during our simulations. And we also have some approximations to account for some off-fault yielding uh, to limit our strain rates. And then we use these fault models to simulate not just a single dynamic rupture, but simulations of sequences of earthquakes and aseismic slip. So this diagram here showing, or this plot here is showing the cumulative slip over many sequences of small and large earthquakes. Seismic slip is shown in red in the velocity weakening area, and that's sandwiched between two velocity strengthening areas that will load the fault and have post-seismic slip. 
um, so on over hundreds of thousands of years. And then from, from these simulations, we can then actually create a catalog of simulated earthquakes where we can analyze different aspects like the evolution of stress and slip along the fault, as well as creating catalogs of average earthquake source properties that we can then compare different fault models to different seismological properties from our simulated earthquakes. So this is essentially our, our protocol here for simulating earthquakes and analyzing the source properties. Um, so just to give a little uh, idea of what these simulation outputs look like here, one of the key aspects that we see from these fault models is despite applying uniform frictional properties and effective normal stress along our velocity weakening area, we see that our simulations can become quite heterogeneous. And this is just due to the heterogeneous evolution of slip and stress during different earthquakes. So here I'm showing three different earthquakes in the same simulation with increasing time. They all nucleate in more or less the same area. So on the right here, I'm showing the shear stress along the fault with gray being a shear stress before the rupture and blue being after the rupture. So all three of these earthquakes are nucleating in some region of relatively high stress here, denoted by the purple area. And they rupture to different regions, shown by the gray shaded regions. Um, on the left is the evolution of slip during these ruptures contoured with time. And so we can see that the shear stress conditions on the fault become heterogeneous, basically due to the stress conditions revolving due to the loading of slow and fast slip, as well as stress least during local slip. And that's being accommodated by our rate and state friction laws by the direct effect describing the current motion, the history of motion, and changes in pore fluid pressure. And essentially, the sizes of the individual ruptures are depending on the stress, not just at the nucleation condition, but ahead of the rupture. So when we have smaller events that are arresting due to low pre-stress, they leave behind some area of elevated stress for the next rupture. And eventually, large ruptures are able to propagate through when we have sufficiently high enough stress within. Um, but one of the key takeaways here is that we don't prescribe this heterogeneity. It just naturally evolves in these simulations due to the differential motion throughout the simulations. And so one of the key points I like to just point out here is that when we look at these individual ruptures, we can look at average properties such as average slip and stress drop, but the evolution of motion and stress during each of these points is very different. So if we look at points at typical in the nucleation site, propagation and arrest, the evolution of slip and stress is quite different, where in the nucleation, we have points that are initially at high stress near this quasi-static resistance and then just decay more or less monotonically. For points in the typical propagation arrest, the stress levels are actually initially much lower than the quasi-static failure conditions and are drawn to failure dynamically. That's what's indicated here by this large peak. And then you evolve, and even in some points, you have more slip than the nucleation area, but a smaller stress drop. And the areas of arrest, you actually have negative stress drop, um, where you have the stress afterwards is higher than initially. So key point here is that the conditions that are required to nucleate the, air, the earthquake and for it to continue propagating are not exactly the same. And when we are looking at these average properties, we're looking at the ensemble of all this together. So an interesting detail, if we take all these different earthquakes and take the spatial average of the shear stress along the total rupture area, um, and we plot that as a function of the rupture length. So the y-axis here is the average rupture pre-stress normalized by the quasi-static resistance or essentially the nucleation stress for the um, simulation. Each of these dots is showing it the average pre-stress for a single earthquake in the simulation, and the colors denote different simulations for different uh, levels of efficiency of enhanced weakening. 
And on the x-axis, we're showing the rupture length uh, normalized by the nucleation size. So on the left, we're seeing all of our small earth phase comparable to the nucleation size nucleating under relatively high stress. And as we look at increasingly larger earthquakes, in all these models, we see that the average pre-stress is actually lower with increasing earthquake size. And so the critical stress conditions for an earthquake of a given size really depends on the size of the rupture and the efficiency of weakening in these fault models. Where we're seeing that for fault models with a very efficient weakening, the average stress conditions for a given earthquake can be much lower than the stress conditions for nucleation. And even for our, our typical rate and state models, this is the same case. It's just not as uh, substantial as in the case with efficient dynamic weakening. And so this is just showing that these large fault areas can appear to be under stress with respect to quasi-static failure conditions, but are still sufficiently large, uh, sufficiently stressed to propagate larger earthquakes, right? And if we were to normalize, the, or if we were to divide the average initial stress by our effect, interseismic effective normal stress, then we would see these apparent friction uh, levels around 0.3 are much lower than Byerly values, right? Just by accounting for this average over a much larger area. Um, so this is just looking into the fact that when we're averaging, we are encapsulating all these aspects of both, just not just how the earthquake is starting, but also the conditions governing how it's propagating. Senate? Yes? So they're not quite as low as the average, right? For these ones. For these ones. So for some of the other simulations, uh, I'll show some examples with even more efficient weakening, and then you can drop them all the way down to like 0 0.05, you know, even lower, right? And But what we'll see later on is that those won't have as wide of a distribution of earthquake sizes. So here we're looking at simulations that still produce a wide range of earthquake sizes. Um, and so for the most efficient weakening here, with moderate thermal pressurization, it drops down to around 0 0.3. If we also sim had a larger simulation domain where we looked at even larger faults, you could have this drop a little bit further. But also, if you increase the efficiency of enhanced dynamic weakening, you can drop the production. So approximately what magnitude range does that correspond to? So this will go somewhere between, I think, magnitude 5 and magnitude 7.5 and 8 in, in these simulations. So these are also 2D simulations. So one has to kind of do some, depending on how you account for that extra dimension. But somewhere around a five to seven here. Okay, thanks. So going back to stress drops, one of the interesting details from this phenomena is that we see that these simulations with thermal pressurization also produce nearly magnitude invariant stress drops. And that's because if we look at the spatially average shear stress before and after the rupture, as expected, the final stress is decreasing with increasing average slip, as we expect with thermal pressurization. The fault is weakening more with increasing slip. But as we just saw, so is the average initial stress. The conditions over which these large earthquakes are propagating is increasingly lower. And so when we look at the difference between these two, we see that for our simulation, our earthquakes that are resting due to pre-stress conditions result in more or less the same average static stress drop. Um, you'll see at the edges here, for these ruptures that are actually arrested due to the velocity strengthening properties, they have a different trend, and that depends on the rheological conditions there. But for our, our ruptures that are arrested just due to low pre-stress conditions, they end up having more or less the same stress drop. And so this is just showing that accounting for these finite fault effects in terms of how the ruptures are starting and also stopping is really important for interpreting these average properties, not just in terms of the local friction. Um, so coming back to our physical explanations for low heat, low stress operation, we have these two N-member models 
One was that faults could be persistently weak. So either we have low quasi-static friction or persistent uh, fluid overpressurization. So our shear stresses are always low, resulting in low shear heating. And essentially, in these kind of fault models, the average stress is always within one stress drop of static failure. As we just saw, we can also have these dynamically weak faults where our average stress level could be very far below static failure. We can still get typical stress drops between 1 and 10 MPA and have low heat production. And essentially, the average stress is just operating very far away from quasi-static failure. Nucleation is happening in some very small locations. And the differences between these stress levels are maintained, are basically mitigated, or sorry, facilitated by large dynamic stress changes due to enhanced weakening. Um, and the key bit here is that in both these cases, we can still get typical stress drops. So how do we really differentiate between these two? So let's take a look at what some of these different ruptures look like. So on the left, I'm going to show what is typical of a rupture on a persistently weak fault due to fluid overpressurization. The top is going to show the evolution of slip along a fault, and the bottom will show the evolution of shear resistance. And we can see the gray is showing the stress at the beginning. The rupture will nucleate over here on the right. So maybe I can get this to play. Might not be able to find the actual video thing. Oh, there we go. Can I stop it? So we can see here the black line is showing the evolution of shear stress at time. So as a rupture is expanding, you can see that the rupture nucleates here. The stress is propping along, and the shear stress is brought up above static failure by this dynamic stress concentration. An important detail that we'll see throughout rupture is that the evolution of stress behind is not staying at some fi finite level. It drops, it stays low, but it's continuously evolving just due to ways and the evolution of shear resistance, right? And so we can actually see here at the rest of it, you see this little evolution of shear stress where, I don't know if I can go back and show that. At the end of the rupture, you'll see that there'll be this dynamic adjustment of the stresses from the sliding level at the very end. And that's what we'll call this overshoot that can happen due to the arrest of slip due to waves propping along. And so this type of evolution is typical of what we call a crack-like rupture. On the right, I'll show what we call a self-tilling pulse on a quasi-statically strong, dynamically weak fault. So in this case, you can note that the stress levels are completely different. Nucleation is going to happen here at uh, a very high level in a very small area. And then throughout most of the rupture, this initial stress levels are very low. You have this large dynamic stress concentration going up to failure, dropping down to a very low level of shear resistance that's even lower than the final shear resistance. And then you have this healing that happens behind the rupture tip. Right. And so in this case, we have much larger dynamic stress changes, but ultimately the difference between the stress at the beginning and end of the rupture is actually quite mild. Yeah. Energetically, I mean, is there is there a lot more radiated energy with the impulse one or yeah. So that's exactly what we're going to look at now. So, so that is exactly the point. And one of the key differences between these two two ruptures and the crack-like rupture we saw is you know, during both these ruptures, the, the sliding resistance is never constant. But for the crack-like rupture, we saw that it drops to low shear resistance and it stays there. For the self-tilling pulse, we saw that it drops and it reheals. And if we go and try to calculate these average shear stress versus slip diagrams for these simulated ruptures, they are showing kind of this average evolution of shear resistance during the rupture. So for crack-like ruptures, 
we drop our level of dynamic sliding resistance is not the same as our final stress level. So our as this mild dynamic overshoot, but more or less our static and dynamic stress changes are this, are comparable, right? One of the key differences for these self-hang pulses is this dynamic undershoot, where we have this very large dynamic stress change and then this real healing at the very end that leads to a relatively mild static stress drop. And so our static stress drop is much smaller than our dynamic stress drop in these simulations. And if we look at the partitioning of our strain energy change into our dissipated energy and our radiated energy shown here in blue, we see that while these two simulated ruptures have more or less the same average slip and stress drop, they have very different radiated energy. Um, so this can even be quantified. Like another feature that the typical energy budget is used is to calculate this quantity called the radiation efficiency, which would be the ratio of the radiated energy to, in principle, the radiated energy and this breakdown energy. So that would be some notion of how dynamic the rupture would be. In terms of inferable quantities, this is typically related to the ratio of the radiated energy to the static stress drop and slip based off of that standard crack motivated uh, dynamic crack model from beforehand, right? If we look at the true radiation efficiency for these two ruptures, they're both around 0.8. So they're both equivalently dynamic in that physical sense, but the inferable radiation ratio here is six times different, right, between the two. And that's just because of the much larger radiated energy for the self-hanging pulse compared to this crack-like rupture. Um, and so we see this as a, a fairly systematic trend where our simulated uh, pulses with them increasingly sharper. So sharpness here means that the ratio of the rise time or the slip, local slip duration compared to the total rupture duration, the sharper that pulse is, the greater this undershoot is relative to the static stress drop and the higher this radiation ratio is. So the scale of radiated energy here just refers to this radiation ratio, also called Savage-Wood efficiency, which is a ratio of radiated energy to stress drop and slip or the apparent stress to, to static stress drop. And so what we see is for our simulated crack-like ruptures here in blue, we get radiation ratio somewhere between 0 0.1 and 1, and an average undershoots somewhere around 0. For increasingly sharper pulses going up to undershoots around 4 times the stress drop, we can get values up to around 5 or 7, right? So very sharp pulses leading to much higher radiation energy. And if we compare this to our current estimates from larger earthquakes, which again, to a lot of debates with seismologists um, over whether we should trust these at all. But if we look at our simulated radiated energy to moment compared to this inferable available energy or stop and slip, we see that our self-hitting pulses are substantially higher in terms of the scale of radiated energy compared to our crack-like ruptures. And the crack-like ruptures from our simulations are more or less comparable with typical Teleseismic estimates from large megathrust earthquakes. So these are most of our estimates of radiated energy come from megathrust earthquakes because most of our large earthquakes are megathrust earthquakes. And so these are these red or pink stars here are from Ling Ling Li's catalog. Um, so that's more or less consistent with our crack-like ruptures, which would suggest that perhaps self-hitting pulses are actually not that common. In contrast, we see that these the higher values from our self-hitting pulses might be consistent with whether these green triangles are regional estimates for crustal earthquakes. Mm -hmm. So perhaps based off of these radiated energy estimates, we could say that megathrusts are chronically weak and host many crack-like ruptures. Yes. Sorry, whose um, crustal earthquakes are those? So these come from a variety of okay. different sources. So that's a whole other question that we'll talk about in a second. So if we were if we were to trust these estimates reported, one could try to make this physical argument that maybe we have this difference between megathrust earthquakes that are more crack-like and 
uh, crustal earthquakes that are more selfing pulses, um, which has been also supported because a lot of the arguments for self-filling pulses come from like Tom Heaton's work, which are for crustal earthquakes predominantly. But uh, another major difference is these, the regional estimates here are coming from different methods, published in different papers. You can also see here that these are based off of regional estimates versus teleseismic estimates. And for some of these earthquakes, we actually have regional and teleseismic estimates for both. And you can see that there's a huge difference between them. So essentially, there are a variety of different conclusions that we can raise here. One being, if we trust these, then maybe we can say something interesting about the physics governing these different uh, types of major faults. Alternatively, maybe there's a huge systematic bias in our estimates of radiated energy, potentially between regional and teleseismic. And the main conclusion I'd like to say here is it'd be really useful if we could better understand whether this is bias or actually a legitimate difference. The other key point here is also stress drop, which is another factor, because the stress drop that is used for these is an energy-based stress drop versus for these is typical moment-based stress drop, which is typically lower. And we know that there can be orders of magnitude variation in those as well, right? So lots of questions on reliability of seismological inferences, but if we think they're useful at all, then they could tell us something here. Um, so one last point kind of uh, along this topic for average quantities, relating it back to notions of fault strength, is this importance of healing. Um, so when we talk about the critical conditions for an earthquake to happen, one of the arguments that we've been trying to say is, well, we can see that the average stress conditions for these larger earthquakes can be much lower than our you know, quasi-static friction conditions for nucleation. Um, but another big point is that these types of ruptures like self-filling pulses that experience this rapid healing also allow for uh, much higher stresses on average to be able to maintain for earthquake or on falls. So there have been some arguments, you know, a lot of our arguments for low stress operation come from thermal constraints or geometry. But I've also been some arguments, such as maintaining surface topography, that the average shear stresses along some areas with large topography have to be substantially higher, right? Multiple stress drops higher than typical shear heating constraints. And so one of the key differences that we see in these simulations is that having this uh, substantial healing allows for this difference between your pre-earthquake stress and dissipation-based stress that could potentially be constrained from heat flow to be multiple factors of the stress drop, right? So here we can see that's proportional to essentially our undershoot or our radiation ratio and the static stress drop. And the relationship essentially between our pre-earthquake stress and this dissipation-based stress depends on the style of rupture that we're seeing. So in the case for crack-like ruptures with a static and dynamic stress drop are more or less the same. If you have a static stress drop of five MPA, your pre-earthquake stress drop is gonna be about five MPA higher than your dynamic resistance on average. Whereas for a self-filling pulse, it can be multiple factors of that, basically depending on your radiation ratio. So if we were actually able to constrain radiated energy better and these dynamic stress changes better, we might be able to actually say something about the absolute level of stress relative to our dynamic stress here, right? And that's more consistent with the dynamic stress changes rather than the static stress changes. Um, so just to summarize this bit here, one key point that I really want to drive home here is that fault heterogeneity, not just in terms of material properties, but also stress and motion during ruptures is really important when we talk about rupture evolution and accounting for that is really important when we talk about average shear resistance and properties from laboratory and field scales, particularly relating average and local behavior. Um, another thing which I think is pretty 
well understood nowadays that flu is can play a significant role, but not just in terms of this persistent fluid overpressurization, but also transient changes in fluids, both in terms of weakening, and as I was just trying to point out there at the end, the healing that can happen, in this case on the time scale of the rupture itself. Um, what we see from our models is that these fault models with persistent fluid overpressurization and also moderate thermal pressurization, which is actually very important for these simulations, results in nearly magnitude invariant stress drops with typical reasonable stress drop levels. I didn't show this here, but it's been widely shown that you can get increasing average breakdown energy with rupture size and radiated energy that's consistent with teleseismic estimates for megatrust. So taking all that together, these kind of models could be plausible representations of subjective results, you know, with thermal pressurization and persistent fluid overpressurization. I want to point out that thermal pressurization is actually really important in these models with uh, persistent fluid overpressure because with rate and state friction, if you have low effective confinement of 20 MPa, you'll get stress drops that are less than 1 MPa. So to have stress drops that are actually higher than 1 MPa, you need to have some enhanced weakening still in these models. As we saw, for our models with more efficient weakening, we typically result in sharp self-filling pulses that can still have reasonable stress drops, but much larger dynamic stress drops and much higher rated energy um, compared to our teleseismic estimates. If these regional estimates are actually to be trusted, then they could be consistent with our simulated self-filling pulses. So one potential, one potential con uh, consideration of these models with efficient thermal pressurization and self-filling pulses could be consistent with mature continental faults. Um, but once again, all this depends on the reliability of our current estimates of radiated energy and stress drop, which obviously can contain a lot of different sources of bias. So that's one of the areas that we're actually working on right now is using our simulated sources to try to tease out these different potential sources of bias and if we can improve on them. But key pitch for everyone here is it would be really useful to try to evaluate these, um, these different seismological quantities, both for understanding the driving physics of earthquakes, but also the absolute stress condition of faults. Um, so for the last few minutes, one of the key things you might realize from a lot of this modeling is that individual earthquakes are really complicated, and trying to derive anything from the properties of one earthquake is really challenging. Um, so the question is, can we start to use earthquake populations to drive other information? So one other observation that we see in these fault models is that if we looked at these average stress conditions, and this is what I was mentioning to Nick beforehand, the as the average pre-stress along the fault, as the average stress condition along the fault gets drawn very far below nucleation conditions with efficient weakening, we can see that these faults are basically not well-primed to nucleate earthquakes. So in these fault models that we have, under stress, the fault models are very under stress over large fault areas. It is actually challenging for small earthquakes to nucleate, and once they do, it becomes much easier for them to become larger. And so what we actually see in these simulations is on the left, if we look at our fault models with relatively mild weakening, as has been shown in a number of studies, you get a wide variety of rupture sizes, particularly with a large number of smaller events. You can create Gutenberg with kind of mild weakening. But as we increase the efficiency of weakening in these simulations, with everything else being the same, we see that more efficient weakening tends to produce predominantly large earthquakes at the expense of small ones. So essentially, all the small earthquakes are becoming large earthquakes, and the stress conditions are not favorable for nucleating. You need very special heterogeneity to create any small earthquakes. Um, and so this is consistent with a body of work suggesting that efficient dynamic weakening shows diminished microseismicity and that the paucity or complete quiescence, uh, paucity of small events or complete quiescence along some mature fault segments, such as potentially the central section of San Andreas Fault, or also potentially Cascadia or the Alpine Fault in New Zealand, 
may be an observational indication of efficient dynamic weakening. Um, so that's an interesting alternative or kind of complementary observation looking at seismicity trends and deviations from typical Gutenberg retrospects. Um, so this is also particularly interesting when we look at, you know, whether, you know, for early warning, this could potentially be interesting. Just observationally, one can make this claim that if you don't have many small earthquakes, the probability of any given earthquake becoming larger is going to be higher. So that's one thing, and this would be a physical motivation for improving early warning. And it's also particularly interesting when we think about potential rupture propagation, as has been shown by previous modeling, where our ideas for what regions might be stable or unstable, such as creeping sections or sections that have ETS zones, such as in Cascadia, may in fact be less stable or potentially prone for rupture penetration during large earthquakes driven by enhanced dynamic weakening. So that's my last little message here. And I will go ahead and conclude with these points, which I think I've already covered, but I'm happy to take any questions. You. Nice talk, Miller. Um, let's start with the online questions today. Uh, Joan Gombert, you have a question? Unmute. Sorry, this is uh, probably a stupid question, but it's about the role of slow slip. So in some large earthquakes, we see precursory slow slip, and certainly many models of seismic tremors and other events are inferred to be initiated or triggered by the slow slip. Is it too slow to initiate some of this dynamic weakening, or does it, is that, uh, is the slow slip doing in getting is it is it weakening the fault or is it just too slow so it, the in many in many models just a bit, and when you're having some slow slip there it is involved with some sort of weakening so you are weakening the fault the question is to what degree and so definitely one can create circumstances where slow slip like just during our earthquake nucleation in these kind of models that is the slow slip process that just the conditions are just favorable enough for it to go fast enough to start to actually nucleate a dynamic event, right? So there, the short answer is yes. For aseismic, you know, slow slip events, there is a potential that they could actually just get to the critical point where you trigger enough enhanced weakening that that could lead a runaway earthquake, right? And that's an interesting question that we're trying to explore now. It depends on the sliding rate, but it also depends on a lot of other factors, right? So in these kind of thermally activated processes like thermal pressurization, it will depend on the evolution of shear stress and sliding rate. So you have to be sliding fast enough to have thermal pressurization kicked in. It doesn't necessarily need to be at meters per second, but it can actually start around some fractions of millimeters per second. Um, but it also depends on how localized that shear is happening, right? So if you imagine some aseismic motion happening over meters, then you probably would not be creating enough localized uh, heat to have thermal pressurization. But if it wasn't a localized zone and you had a slow slip event that was getting up to around millimeters per second, one could potentially imagine that actually kicking in some enhanced weakening and having a runaway. So 
short answer is yes, it, it is possible that the aseismic events lead to some enhanced weakening. Thank you. Actually, I do want to add on, that's one of the key things that we worry about for some models looking at slow slope events, is that if you add in, a lot of times when we think about slow slope events, we also don't account for inertial effects in simulations. So they do like quasi-dynamic simulations. And if you take those same conditions and add in inertial effects, which we assume to be negligible, they actually all, the optimal uh, accelerate into earthquakes. So aseismic events might actually be much closer to dynamic than we actually think. Any more questions online? I can't see the yeah, hands. I've got Jeff. a hand from um, Alex Haddam. Can you Can unmute you yourself? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for a nice talk. Uh, informative. I'm wondering, unless I missed something egregious, you spoke a lot about uh, mega thrust events and continental crustal strike slip events, but not really about continental or crustal dip slip events. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you've done any simulations on those and that you might have into those faults in terms of um, their efficiency and their ability to store stress, putting maybe some um, bounds on maximum slip or rupture length. Yeah, so the simulations I've done haven't really taken into account like different geometrical features for them. Like the main thing that we're probing these, the simulations I showed today are all 2D anti-plane simulations. Like really what we're changing is the efficiency of weakening Right, and the absolute stress levels on them. Um, so the main comparison is just the stress drops in the radiated energy. Um, that's the kind of features I, I'm really comparing to those. So I'm not actually super aware off the top of my head of differences between strike slip and dip slip, <coughs> continental earthquakes. I don't know if someone else in the room has some better knowledge of that. Um, but, so I, I can't say off the top of my head for differences of that um, myself. Anyone else have an idea for observations of stress drop and radiated energy? No. Be interesting to look into, though. <laughs> it's a it's a common common theme of silence. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, ben Brooks. Hey, can you hear me? Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, thanks for a great talk. Just chock full of everything. It seemed like I have uh. Two two questions. One is if you could could you go back to the slide where you had the side by side simulations of the uh, crack like versus self healing pulses, the really interesting simulations. Um, and I'm struck. Yeah, I'm struck by the sort of final slip distribution of the self healing pulse for the you know for the uh, well for the self healing pulses. And you know I'm sure you're aware that that's those distributions look pretty different than like observed geological or finite fault. Uh, slip distributions. I'm wondering if you could just comment. Should we read anything into that or or would it um, possibly be di yeah. diagnostic? I, that's, that's a great question of like when we look at actual slip distributions, what are these are, are dynamically feasible, right? Um, so I would say yes, that's something to look into, particularly in a sense of, um, you know, in these simulations, like while they're complicated, like with the simulations I'm presenting are sophisticated in terms of their enhanced weakening, they're very simple in terms of geometry and energy right. that we put in. So there's obviously a question of like, with this enhanced weakening, you get very sensitive to small changes in stress. So you can imagine things growing or decaying in different ways, right? Um, and so here I'm showing just a very simple example of a self-impulse. We can get some that are much more complicated looking um, and that have 
different levels of slip in different areas, right? So they can grow and die and everything like that as well. They're not all as box shaped as I'm okay, showing. Okay, yeah, right, right. right. Um, right. Here I'm just choosing two ruptures that happen to have the same average stress drop and slip to, to illustrate. But it's an inter it is a, a, so my short answer is, it, one shouldn't look too much into it because we can create ruptures in so many different ways. At the same time, it is an interesting question given how sensitive self-healing pulses are, how sensitive they might be to formative heterogeneity and their feasibility as well for reproducing realistic slip distributions that we see on folds. Um, possibly, possibly finding some super simple <laughs> geometry in nature of, a, of an event to, to look at. It, it, it's hard though, that measurements can be pretty noisy. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so and then second question, and, and sorry if I, I misunderstood this. At the end, you were talking about the the sort of um, uh, propensity of ruptures to maybe propagate into, um, say, creeping areas. Um, yeah. So, of course, you know, everybody's thinking about um, uh, the central section of the creeping San Andreas. And yeah. So what would you say then? I mean, we do have evidence of Parkfield, you know, of ruptures in the southern portion. They're stopping and yeah. not propagating across so i don't know could you I, I don't want to put you too much on the spot on that but i mean could you comment on that yeah i mean so that's i mean that's actually an area that you know people are actively working on including in, in modeling right to see what are the conditions that would allow you to propagate through and the reality is that it you know for these sequences of events you can actually set up very simple conditions where sometimes a rupture will propagate through sometimes it won't like in the paper here from uh, Hironoda and Nadia Lapusta, you know, where they're just looking at these two patches kind of modeling the to, Tohoku events. Um, you see that if you have thermal pressurization, depending on the stress conditions from the history of previous ruptures, sometimes, you know, it could in principle rupture through, but the stress conditions are just not there because you're still, you know, it's still too soon since the last event that it doesn't penetrate through. So you have an earthquake that propagates and stops propagates and stops. So it's very similar to the models I showed here where the ruptures nucleate in some areas, but whether it actually grows to rupture the entire fault segment depends on the history of stress at that point, right? And so it takes time to load that back up. Um, so just because an earthquake didn't propagate through in some sequence of events so far doesn't necessarily mean that the next time it won't. In fact, maybe that's the point is that it's been loading that area up. Right. Hard to discern from that history whether it cannot break through. In fact, one of the really what you need to know is whether rheologically speaking, that area dissipates enough energy that if a large earthquake propagated through there, it wouldn't just continue going, right? Even if it didn't have enhanced weakening, you need to know if you're sucking up enough energy to arrest the rupture itself. Um, and that's a more complicated thing to constrain. Um, but that is something that I know a number of people are trying to study in, in their model, models. Um, so short answer is still possible. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Thanks for kind of setting the time scale of that a little bit more. That that makes sense. Thanks. Mm -hmm. um, so we have four more questions. Let's, uh, it's 1130 now. Let's kind of wrap up the formal part and then we'll stick around in the team's room and continue the discussion. But let's thank uh, Valair again and stop the recording.